Welcome to In Transition, a program dedicated to the practice of content communication in the public sector. Here's your host, David Pembroke. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to In Transition, the podcast that examines the practice of content communication in government and the public sector. My name's David Pembroke, and thank you for joining me on this program. Today, it's a program with a difference. At the end of last year, I went across to the United Kingdom and to Europe uh, on a bit of a business development tour, met quite a few people over there, tried to understand the marketplace and the maturity of content marketing and content communication in government and, and the public sector. And a great trip, actually. Enjoyed myself, had a good time. Uh, but another purpose of why we were there was to announce that the Australian coach of the England National Rugby Union team, who's a gentleman by the name of Eddie Jones, is now an ambassador of Content Group. So Eddie and I have known each other for 20 plus years and we've been heavily involved in each other's careers. We spend a lot of time and have spent a lot of time over the years discussing high-performing teams, discussing how you can get the best out of the people who work for you and who work with you, uh, how to influence and engage with different audiences and really, you know, had a professional collaboration f- over a, a long period of time. And so anyway, I decided that I would ask Eddie if he would like to join us as an ambassador. And the reason being, obviously, it is very high profile uh, around the world, not just in Europe and the United Kingdom, and that it would, his involvement would help us to attract interest uh, in content group and the work that we are doing. And so that was the case. And so in November of last year, we held an event for about 50 people uh, at the Hilton Hotel near Tower Bridge in London. So it was a great event. And here is just a bit of that night when we spoke to Eddie Jones about how to build and sustain high-performing teams. Thanks, Eddie. Tuesday night of a test week. Uh, how's your week been so far? Uh, well, the week's always decided on Saturday. Uh, you can have a, have a good week. Uh, no, everyone's up for it. Uh, you know, when you play against Australia in anything and you're representing England, it's a big contest. So, yeah, we're really keen to do well. It should be a great occasion. Australia's in good form, playing well. Uh, we're in a... A good state, uh, moving in the right direction. You're in trouble with your mum. <laughs> uh, that's a good media story, mate. Uh, no, but she actually did ring me. Uh, so it's good that she listens to everything, probably not the right things. What did she say? Uh, she said, I told you not to swear. <laughs> it's interesting. We, we had a conversation after that. Um, and interestingly, at the RFU, the... Because I thought, oh, hang on, this could go one way. And certainly some elements of the media were like, oh, you know, this foul-mouthed tirade and, you know, blowing it up and all the rest of it. But the feedback from the RFU uh, looking at social media was that it was a real positive uh, amongst the fans. Uh, Having that passion and... and Does that surprise you that the England fans would be so uh, supportive of you given that you you showed that passion? Depends if we win on Saturday, I think. (laughs) 
It was funny. One of the journalists who uh, husband's a big Arsenal fan was saying the only thing he wants to see is some passion from Wegner. Uh, so it's quite interesting how people's perception of, of what's right and what's wrong is. So tell me, let, let's go back to um, high performance and, and, and building high-performing teams. Uh, do you have a defined approach to doing, uh, you know, to going about building the teams or is it, do you, do you take it a situation as you see it, as, as you come along? Uh, well, I've been lucky enough to coach a, a number of international sides, uh, so it's always been quite challenging. Uh, I think the first thing I've always looked at is I look at the culture of the country and try to work out what's really important for that for that country, what's important in that society. Uh, so, for instance, with Japan, I got someone to do a study on the samurai uh, tradition because even though the young people in Japan don't don't even know who samurais are, you know, they're like everyone else. They the only thing they know is their iPhones. <laughs> um, that. Their parents educated them like that. So, yeah, what came out of that thesis was that hard work, loyalty and trust were the three most important values, similar to what you were saying. So, therefore, we created the whole team around that. So, they were the three values that we really focused on as being really important. Uh, coming to England, it was, it was a little bit different again. Um, yeah, you take over a team that hasn't been in a good state you try to immediately work out those players who want to want to do something a little bit different, who are prepared to be brave. And then, yeah, one of the things I've found in, in England is that people like to be polite um, and it's an important part of the society here. So we've tried to make sure that's part of, of how we operate. Um, sometimes that goes to the edge. Um, but... <laughs> And and they and the players work hard here. Hard work's you know something that the English really embrace. So that's certainly a couple of things that we've done with England side. And then it's working out what makes them happy to play. Because again, I think that's connected to how you operate your life. Because some teams uh, want to attack, some teams want to defend, um, because that's the way they're educated. You know, Australian teams want to attack. You know, you win by attacking. English teams, I think, generally speaking, like to win by defence. So we want to. So immediately building the team here, I build it around defence, about the set piece, getting those things right, and then we can build on that. What the, this notion of politeness is an interesting one. What, how how do you coach politeness, or how do you how, how do you leverage off that as a way of strengthening a team? Uh, well, I just think it's the way you operate. Um, yeah, and I think. When you're operating in a different culture, one of the most important things you've got to have is discernment. You've got to understand in that in that culture what's important that you don't break break those. You know, so English players don't like to be told off in front of other players. You know, staff don't like to have a robust discussion in front of each other. Um, they really don't. You know, it makes them uncomfortable. Um, so you've got to find other ways to do it. Okay, so it's it is, and, and it's still a, a central part of the team that you're building at the moment. Uh, well, I wouldn't say it's a central part of the team. I would say it's it's part of the way we operate more so. Mm -hmm. You know, the players. The interest. The other interesting thing was that you know, people always talk about culture with teams, um, and so with England because the previous coach had had 
spoken about it a lot and it was a big thing for the team, you know, after 2011 and dwarfs were being thrown in the harbour and, you know, players were jumping off boats in the harbour and, you know, everything that was, wasn't was particularly nice happened during the 2011 World Cup. So the next coach, there was a big drive to be politically correct and, and to be, you know, nice, upright citizens and I think that was hammered into the players um, so I took the approach of not even talking about culture. I just said, look, if you want to train hard, you want to play hard in the English way, you can be here. If you don't want to do that, it's a choice, you can go. So I allowed the players to evolve some values of, of their own uh, under Dylan, who's, you know, the most exceptional captain. He really is a first-class captain. Uh, he's... Yeah, unfortunately, he's not a first-class player, but we're getting there. <laughs> we're getting, we're getting, we're getting, we're getting him fit. Uh, he'll get there. He'll get there. He's got two years to get there. Um, but uh, he's an exceptional captain. He's worked really hard, hard with the players off the field. And what I like, what they've done, they've come up with two values of players. One, pioneering, because they want to, they want to be brave enough to do things that are new, and that break the mould of an English side and two, the other one which is probably the most important one is choice. You know, every time, are you making the winning choice? Every day when you come to training, are you, are you prepared to work harder to get better? So it's, it's been quite enlightening in that area because other teams, you know, you, the first thing you try to do is try to set that, that cultural background to the team. And with England, so we've done exactly the opposite, but we've actually the end result. And I can remember with Robbo um, at the Brumbies. So the Brumbies had a strong culture and I remember going there and I brought this bloke in. You know, he looked like an out-of-work porno star. <laughs> and, and he had two days with the team and it was just an absolute disaster. And the team went away for three hours. Had, had, in those days you could have a few beers. Over a few beers the team worked out how they wanted to move forward. So I think the one thing you've got to be careful of is always working out for that group and for that group at that time what you need to do to get them together to work together. Mm. So those those values, what was the process through which, you know, Dylan Hartley was able to develop that? Was it a series of informal discussions or formal discussions or and, and what role did you play? Because you just said there that you really left it to, to the players to come up. Yeah, look, very informal. Uh, sort of just I think the term now is organically uh, grew um, and certainly I just played a bit of an advisor role with Dylan. You know, I'll talk to him every day and I'll talk to him about, about what's important for a team to be strong. I think, you know, the other interesting thing is that you can call all these things any sort of name but most teams operate, if you're not working hard, if you haven't got something to believe in and people don't understand their roles, you're not going to be successful. So you've got to find a way to make that right for your team and it and can be right in a number of different ways. And you mentioned Hartley and, and his exceptionalism. What is it? What are the qualities of, of his leadership that he's working with this particular team? Uh, well, there's a book out now, um, Captains. It's something on Captains. It's written by Wallace, I think. It's quite an interesting book. If you haven't read it, it's worth a read. Uh, don't, just don't read the first three chapters. Just tear them out when you get the book. <laughs> the rest of it's not bad. But he's, he's, a, he's a guy that leads from behind, you know. He leads from behind because he's prepared to do all the, the simple things. So, you know, just at the start, the dressing room, he was the one that, 
they cleaned out the dressing room. No one needed to tell him to do it. He was the one that go and pick up the strapping. He was the one that go and pick picked up the water bottles. He just did all the simple things. Um, you know, he's he's set examples by by getting fitter. He's set examples by his diligence to an, uh, analytical work. And just the other night, you know, it was quite enlightening. Uh, after after the game, now the players all come down the bar and have a drink. Um, when we played the first game against Scotland, I said to Dylan, I said, look, uh, let's get the boys together and have a drink. He said, he said, mate, we don't do that anymore. And now the players all come with their girlfriends and wives and they sit down. It's lovely. They, you know, they, they don't drink a lot now, but they sit down because Manu and Denny weren't there, um, <laughs> uh, who, who transgressed at certain stages. Um, but now they sit down, they have a bit of a social and they talk about the game. They, they enjoy each other's company and I think that shows the way they play. And on Saturday night, the last two there was Dylan... Who, who wasn't drinking, and Sam Simmons. And that goes to show the approach, who, who won his first cap, quiet boy out of Exeter. Shows the approach of Dylan. You know, he gives time to everyone. He gives time to the senior players, gives time to the junior players. He's just got that way of being able to lead from, from the front and from the back. Mm-hmm. So in terms of your fairly bold statement about, you know, we want to be the number one world uh, team in the world and we want to be... Um, uh, World Cup champions in, in 2019 and coming out and stating it, you know, pretty much around what we're trying to do is stating we want to be the world's leading content communication agency for government and public sector by 2020. What What is the purpose of coming out and saying something as, as clear and as bold as that? And is there a strategy behind being so deliberate about it? Uh, definitely a strategy. I think you've you, you got to know where you want to go. Yeah, you've got to know where you want to go. And you've got to be aspirational about it. And, uh, you know, with the England team, there's no reason why we can't be number one team in the world. Of course it's going to be difficult. Like, to be number one in the world is bloody hard. Um, but if you know where you want to go, then you've got a chance of getting there. If you don't know where you're going to go, you've got no chance of getting there. Now, again, similarly with Japan, I remember saying we're going to make the quarterfinals. And Japan hadn't won a game of the World Cup in 24 years. <laughs> and people were looking at me like I've got two heads when I said that. Yeah, and we nearly did it. We nearly did it. You know, we're the first tier two team to nearly do it. Um, and again, that gave the players a goal because then they, worked, they knew they had to work hard to get there. Um, and same with English players at the moment. Every day I see them believe a bit more because they didn't initially. Like to them, you know, winning the Six Nations was enough. Uh, but now I can see that they've got that desire, you know, Australia would say they've got that bit between their teeth to want to work that little bit harder. You know, I see guys like Ben Youngs who had skin folds not dissimilar to yours when I first saw him. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, not great for rugby. Uh, and now, you know, he's down to 60, 70 mils. Uh, you can see his cheekbones. Um, <laughs> you know, that's a real change in how he operates. Um, and that's, that's part of that is, is knowing where you want to go and, and knowing that then you've got to compete against the best in the world. So we gave him an example of what Aaron Smith does now to what he does now. And he's, you know, he's 15% off the mark. But he wants to get there now. So we're continually setting those challenges for the players. Mm -hmm. So just to give people a bit of an insight into, say, this week and and, and a test week, because test weeks are different um, to to other weeks. Take us through a week 
um, from, say, the end of the game last week? What, what, what are you doing straight away after, after full-time's happened? You've obviously got commitments with media and other things, but what sort of insights are you looking for from the team and, and it, it, how, how does the week run? Uh, so Saturday after the game, they'll come in, we'll have a quick chat, nothing too serious, outline what's ahead of us, get their minds thinking to the next game. Uh, straight away? Straight away. Um, won't spend too much about the last game. Sunday they'll do a recovery in the morning, then have the afternoon off with their families. Then Sunday night we'll get together about 8 o'clock uh, after dinner and we'll put together where we need to go for the week. So we'll have a theme for the week, uh, how we're going to beat Australia, have the three or four key points that's that's going to be important. And one of those will definitely be psychological. Uh and a couple, couple tactical. We won't. But talk. psychological, as in, this is how we're going to to deal with them. This is is our psychological or their psychological? No, no, our psychological. Right. Uh, we'll go over what Australia will be like, what they'll be like, um, and then the players will break up into leading their their groups. So there's four or five leaders that will break away, have a quick chat about the the tactical key areas of the of of their game. Uh, against Australia, uh, and then we're done. Then Mondays, we run a fairly strict program. We've actually changed it this week because we're experimenting a little bit because we're in a, a dress rehearsal for the World Cup now. Um, so, of course, we're desperate to win the game on Saturday. But we want to have uh, a longer-term strategy about how we cope with Japan. Um, so we're doing various sorts of different things. And the, so the strategy this week is we train Monday, have recovery day Tuesday, train Wednesday, recovery day Thursday, train Friday. So it's a little bit different because it might suit some of the schedules in Japan. So Monday's organisational day. It's where we do all the bits and pieces of tactical work on the field. We'll walk through them, jog through them, have a little bit of flush out in the afternoon. They'll do some weights in the morning. Again, a lot of meetings, quite a, a, a mental day. Uh, they'll probably have one unit meeting, a team meeting and maybe other small meetings during the course of the day. Um, then Tuesday today was a recovery. So Tuesday morning they did some weights in the morning, good recovery Tuesday afternoon, Tuesday night off. And then tomorrow we've got a big training run in the morning. We'll train for about 50 minutes approximately. Um, and we set, we're set. we very rigid on setting the clock at 50 minutes. So if we're going to say we're going to train for 50, that's all we're trained for. Um, so it's all about you've got one chance to do things right because you only get one chance in the World Cup final. So again, along that theme. So we had the third uh, string hooker. Uh, come and do a throwing session today. Um, so instead of doing 50 throws, he did one. Didn't get it right, so he didn't do any more. Because your first throw is your most important. So we do all play little mind games like that with the players to, again, to get them to understand how important it is to do things right all the time. You know, you don't get changes. Uh, then Thursday will be a recovery day. Morning they'll have uh, ice baths, saunas, massage, all those sort of things you go to a spa for. So they have a spa day on Thursday. Um, and some of them get their eyebrows done, I think. Um, and, then, and then Friday we have a very fast session for about 20 minutes. Uh, about 60% of the session will be above game pace. Um, but very short, very intense. And then Saturday uh, 
We're in there. Mm. Do you know, I'm, I'm intrigued by that context of, of Rugby World Cup and, you know, the competing demands of continuing to uh, win games. How, how do you resolve that, that tension between the two in that it can't all be about one and it can't all be about the other? So it's got to be somewhere in the uh, middle. Well, again, we probably we tactically periodise it for the players. So the start of a campaign will be all about the World Cup. So we, we went to Portugal last week. The first three days is all about the World Cup. We talk about the World Cup, talk about what we've got to do, and then uh, we get into test match mode. So this week, again, on the Monday, we'll talk a little bit about where we need to go as a team, but then it'll be just about this week. So... Yeah, and it's the player's ability to be able to switch from one to the other, which is important. Because, you know, the number of distractions you have at a World Cup is enormous. You know, they're just, they're just seven games of rugby. You know, rugby's not a difficult game to play. But at the World Cup, you've got all those other distractions. You know, you've got the media pressure, you've got family pressure, you've got selection pressure. You're together for nine weeks. That is abnormal for a team now. Um, so all of those sort of things we want the players to get used to now. Mm. Okay, now look, there is an opportunity to uh, ask a question of uh, Mr Jones and I might just hand that to Flick. So if you do have a question uh, for Eddie, uh, that would be good. And I know Richard Bagnell's already got a question because he asked me last night um, about that. There he is over there. Uh, but I might just throw it to Richard there to ask that what I thought was a very good question that you uh, asked me last yeah. night that I had no idea about. <laughs> well, thank you, David. And uh, thanks, Eddie, for your insights. I think my question was about um, when you're a leader, the balance between being a leader by getting respect from uh, the guys liking you and being a leader by getting respect by the guys fearing you. And my impression, and Obviously, I don't know, but it's, I, f I feel the guys like you, but they also respect you. So what insights can you give us as business leaders in this room about which is the right approach, which works, and what we can do um, to deliver on each of those? Well, I think 20, 20 years ago, and Robbo probably uh, testified this, yeah, he used to coach a little bit by fear, um, but it doesn't work anymore. It doesn't work anymore. Yeah, the guys get demotivated by it. Um, and because, you know, young people have changed a lot and, and it's all about them, you know, and, and their life's all on the iPhone. You know, and the, the difficult thing about sport is that you can't actually in a scrum text the second rower <laughs> to tell them to push hard. Um, so they've got to find other ways of, of communicating with each other and that's hard. Um, so... You know, as, as a leader, it's got to be all about respect. You know, you can't... In our game, you can't afford to be liked and you can't afford to have relationships with players because it's, you know, one minute you're telling them you love them and the next minute you're telling them they're not in the team. Like, today I had to tell six or seven players they're not with us anymore and it never gets any easier. I hate it. I generally never sleep the night before because I hate it telling players that. Uh, so respect is so much. And how do you get respect? I think by, by doing what you say you're going to do. And I think that's just so important as a leader. Whatever you say you're going to do, you do. And whatever you say your staff's going to do, they do. Um, so that your whole organisation's based on, 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 on trust and with trust you get respect. Thank you, David. Thanks, Eddie. Uh, Jeremy Thompson, I'm a... 
proud debenture holder. I was there on uh, on Saturday. We started early, which I think helped. You don't want your enjoyment. money back. You don't want your money back, do you? <laughs> not not yet. Depends what you okay. do on Saturday. But uh, All right. I'll um, keep a hundred quid in my pocket just in case. <laughs> How, how do you keep, you know, it, our, our media are pretty fickle and pretty frustrating, uh, I'm sure for you and, and also for us, but how, how do you keep the team focused in light of some of the, uh, the coverage that you've been getting uh, over the last few days uh, on, the, on the back of one game uh, on a run of, uh, uh, of uh, plenty of wins and, and also the qualification debate, you know, how do you keep people focused when you've got things like that running in the background? Uh, well, in terms of the media... Um we never talk about it, um, although it's really interesting with the players. Like I can remember after, I think it was the Italy game, we were getting absolutely hammered in the press and, and I said something after the game about maybe we're going to try another fullback and the, that week of training, Mike Brown's walking around like, like someone's cut off his head. <laughs> um, and I was about to announce the team for the next week and I got him and I said, mate, why are you so down? And, of course, he didn't say anything. Um, I said, you're in the team. And his whole demeanour changed and I said to him, you've got to remember now not to read the papers. But they do. They read the papers. And if they don't read them, their mum reads it or their father reads it or their girlfriend reads it and they hear about it. So, again, they've just got to be tough. You know, the good players absorb it. They don't believe it. Um, and they just get on with it. And I think, again, Dylan, Dylan's a great example of that. You know, if Dylan read half the stuff, he'd neck himself, wouldn't he? <laughs> you know, he'd be, on the, he'd be on a call line, you know. But, but he just gets on with it, doesn't react to it, doesn't respond to it. And, you know, the media's job is to, is to sell. Um, and we understand that and uh, we don't try to complicate it. We never bring them into discussions. We never say the media says this, so it's a point to prove, you know, it's about us because our expectations is higher than anyone. You know, there was no more disappointed guys on Saturday than the team. You know, everyone was disappointed about the way we played. But, you know, again, I reminded them, it's, sometimes you have those games and they're the games you've got to win because at the World Cup you've got seven games. You're not at your best for every game. It's impossible to be at your best for seven games. And one of those games is the games you've got to win and the World Cup winners win those games. I can remember with, being with South Africa against Tonga. Like, they had us under the pump and they had to bring Matt Field, John Smith, you know, Free Dupree, some of the greatest players in the world off the bench to win the game. And you just got to find a way to win those games. So it was important for us to win it, but we don't pay too much attention to the media, but it's difficult. Can I suggest Mike Brown could benefit from some media training, perhaps? <laughs> uh, well, I think, yeah, the thing I, I like about Brown is just himself. You know, he's, I think, in the context of the team, he's the only boy from a, a non-public school, uh, and he carries that around, you know. Um, and that makes him so feisty, and he fights hard for us, mate. You know, he's not the best player in the world. Again, he's like Dylan, but he's a warrior for us. And those sort of guys are important. They're really important. Um, thanks again for, the, for being here. Um, when you, you took the Brumbies to their most successful period, um, and a very impressive period, but you admitted after your first season, you said you were out of your depth. The first year was very tough. How did you adjust to that in the role? You didn't go off for a few years and come back to a head role. How did you fix it and fix yourself, if you like? Uh, well, uh, uh, one of the things I always remember, I went there 
and I'd been coaching in Japan. I went to the Brumbies and I was absolutely astounded by the lack of professionalism. Like, Rob, I remember that. He used to do weights at Tug, with Tugran on high school, like a local high school. <laughs> There'd be kids roaming around and it was just like an open gym. Uh, there was no coach's office, you know, it was, it was this brilliant team that, that had jumped the rest of them through organisation, but the professionally was quite poor and I sort of, first year in, I went along with it, didn't change too much, but we had an ageing team in key positions and it was obvious we had to make change and I remember, you know, because I was a young coach and I thought I had to do all the right things, I did a questionnaire of the players and all the feedback came back so positive about the coaching, but we came 10th. So we'd gone from 2nd to 10th. So I said, this can't be wrong. Right. So then the next year I changed things. Uh, thought I did what I thought was right for the team. Didn't change what was the intrinsic values of the team, but changed a lot of things around it. We, came, we played the most outstanding rugby, came 5th, and did the same questionnaire and came back. I was a crap coach. Um, so... The one thing I learned about that is that you've got to believe in yourself, you've got to stand for something, you've got to, you've got to know what you think's right and then follow that through. I remember that year very well, that 98, in that we did lose lots of games, we had injuries and other things, but I do remember that feeling within the team, though, that there was that belief, and obviously there was belief in your leadership, but, and again, I think that's a, an insight around um, business as well, is that trusting in your team and the management around you, and even though the results might not be coming exactly as you want them, if you have that belief and that sense of togetherness, um, you'll get through it. Because I, I, I absolutely clearly remember that year thinking, oh, we just lost another game. But things are actually quite good and th- things are moving quite well. And I think there's... Obviously didn't see like me. Th- no. <laughs> well, I do remember you used to... I remember remember you used to get, uh, in that particular season, though, you the the... the people in the grandstand used to really touch you up. They used to really uh, – because they'd had these two golden years. Yeah. <laughs> but they would really, yeah, really come after you a bit at that time, wasn't it? But, um, yeah, but it was good. Like, it, I, I remember that, that – yeah, I, well, to me, anyway, as the communications director, it was – there wasn't a lot of great stories to tell, but I just remember that sense of feeling around the place that we were on the right path. And we were. And ultimately, as, you know, we work through it, we work through it, we work through it. And, uh, you know, Robbo's leadership and your coaching and some good people and all the rest of it. And we became the world's leading provincial rugby union team in the world in, uh, in 2000, 2001. So, uh, yeah, it was a great time. Okay, another question. Yeah. Thank you, David. And thank you, Eddie. Tony Rennan, Englishman and Brumbies fan. Um, Team GB has had some great success in the Olympics in the last couple of um, uh, decades in sports like cycling and bobsleigh and uh, and uh, gymnastics. And now we're hearing lots of stories about the cultures in those sports weren't particularly great and there's lots of stories of bullying and stuff like that going on. How do you keep the focus on winning but making sure it doesn't go too far in that direction? Uh, well, it's difficult. Uh, look, you know, I think it's easy for, for players now to make those sort of comments. Um, and I don't know whether it's true or not. You know, I think whenever you're involved in high performance and you're pushing people to the edge, you've always you, you've got to be careful how far you push them. Like, I certainly now don't push players as nearly as hard as I used to because I don't think psychologically they can handle it. Um, we have all sorts of bits and pieces in place, you know, support mechanisms. We have 
support groups within the team. We have psychologists. We have, you know, psychologists for psychologists. Yeah, we've got, we got everything, everything you could ever think of. Um, and, yeah, it's a, it's a real balancing act and I think you've just got to use – common sense is the general thing you've got to use. But, uh, yeah, no, not easy. What about that issue of of, um, of resources? You know, uh, here uh, with England, you've got more than you could ever have imagined that you would have had to be able to run a football team. And you're a modest bloke. You're not someone who's a profligate in any way. How do you deal with the fact that you do have much, much, much more than you've ever had at any time in your coaching career? Uh, well, it doesn't really change anything. You know, it's all about... You can have the fantastic training centre, but unless players go in there and work hard, it doesn't matter. Uh, so it's all about the attitude. It's all about about how you set it up. Um, you know, we have the luxury that if we need something, we can get it. Um, but certainly, you know, try to be as diligent as I can to make sure that we're not just spending money for, for the sake of it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, next question. Oh, yeah. Uh, thanks, thanks both. Uh, Graham Matthews. One of the things I struggle with in getting the most out of my team is dealing with the difficult personalities. Uh, you've got some interesting personalities in this team and you've certainly had them in the past. How, how do you deal with that? How do you get the most out of...? Well, I think you've got to work out how good they are. Um, <laughs> you know, I think that's super important. Like, uh, Rob, I'll tell you, we had this Aboriginal winger, Andrew Walker. Like, he was trouble. His middle name was Trouble. He could find trouble anywhere. <laughs> yeah, but he was brilliant. And for two years, he was the leading try scorer in Super Rugby. So we manufactured an environment around him that catered for him because he was worth it. And I can remember going to, to Robbo, I think it was Robbo, as captain. We were going to take him to South Africa. And he said he didn't want to go without his wife. Um, and in those days, no one ever took their wives. And the senior players had a discussion, agreed to take him, and he had a great tour, scored tries. We'd take him to McDonald's every Friday because unless he ate McDonald's on Friday, he couldn't play. Um, and, and he was fantastic. But at the back of your mind, you know that's only going to ever last for a period of time. Um, and then I remember trans jumping up to the Wallabies coach and we beat uh, New Zealand in Dunedin. I think it's the last time Australia's beaten New Zealand in New Zealand. Uh, 2001, and he played brilliantly. And then that night we had a, a big party. He got up to some mischief. And on the way home, he then decided to leave the team. Didn't get into trouble from anyone. Took off at, at the airport. We're chasing him around the airport trying to get him back on the plane to go to Perth. And he's gone. And then he, he complains to the press that he, he hasn't got time to see his family and he becomes father of the year and we're the big, big bad uh, oaks. Yeah, so... I think you've got, to, you've got to work out how good they are for your team, whether co culturally and behaviourally your team can handle having one or two of those guys and then, and then know at the bottom of your heart there's going to be a timeline on that and try to move him out before he causes a negative. Next question. Uh, thanks, guys. It's, it's been it's been fan fantastic. Hopefully, it's not ending as well. Just a, a quick question for me, uh, Eddie. Growing up as a Sydney boy, watching you and and Czech and the other boys uh, playing at Coogee Oval every Saturday, it was a real, you know, it was a fantastic childhood. It seemed like rugby was a lot of fun. It was pretty unstructured at Coogee Oval, 
and the the passion that you and that team had really inspired a generation of young people like uh, you know like me and probably a lot of other blokes in the room as well. Is is the game today as fun? Is it is it too overstructured now? Are there too many systems in place to get the same level of enjoyment, or, or are, are the millennial generation who are playing now do they just enjoy it notwithstanding or enjoy that sort of systemic approach to, to rugby? Well, I think there's a couple of things. Uh, you know, whenever a game becomes sophisticated as the game has because you've got players now training 12 months of the year, they're bigger, they're stronger, they're faster, they're more analytic, um, you have to have some sort of system of play. But as you see with the, with the really good teams like the All Blacks, they use the system as a way to get into the game and then they then they then they play with their their eyes and their ears and their skill and and the criticism i have of rugby at the moment is that players aren't skillful enough and that's something as a national team coach you can't control yeah i think there's a real problem in the teaching of the game um and i and i saw it in the 2015 world cup uh we were down at Brighton College and Marcus Smith, I went. I ended up because he was uh, the godson of a guy who I knew really well, went to dinner and he's he's got a little brother who's about this big. So Marcus is about this big, he's about this big, he's, he's not going to play too much, this little bloke. And I asked him, I said, he was under 11s, I said, what do you do at training? He said, oh, we, do def- we practice defence systems at the age of 11. So at the age of 11... Kids are being taught to play a system where they should be just taught to practice skills because the more skillful you are, you can play any system. But the reason coaches do that, there's two reasons for it. One, from the school they're under pressure to win, no doubt about it. And two, there's too many ex-players being employed as coaches. And as soon as you employ an ex-player as a coach, he's doing that for a living. Yeah, you need teachers in there, PE teachers in there, Flisty. You can get a job coaching <laughs> rugby at schools. You can set a new trend up here. Uh, they've got to just be taught skills. Um, and is it as much fun? The guys still love playing the game. You know, you've got your Owen Farrell's George Fords would play the game for nothing. Um, a few of the others, Haskell, you'd probably have to pay to play. <laughs> um, but... Uh, you know, what, what we try to do, and I, I mean it sincerely, you know, when we were amateur players, we tried to be professional. Now they're professional, we want them to have that amateur spirit. So we try to make sure, you know, that they do keep some of the traditions of the game. Um, and I think that's really important. And you, I think you still see that generally with rugby, you know. You've got the examples of the fans still enjoying each other's company that we haven't resorted to this this fierce rivalry between fans that happens in football here. And I think so those sort of traditions are really important to keep in the game. Next question. Uh, G'day, Eddie. Uh, Dick Parker from the Australian High Commission. Um, uh, Probably a personal question. I know it's a professional game. I need a new passport too. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'll I'll let you know on Sunday. Okay, thanks, Um, mate. But I guess that's in line with the question. Yeah. Um, it's a professional game. How do you feel when you're up against your own nation? Uh, look, I'm, because I'm a professional coach and I didn't divorce Australia, Australia divorced me. 
And you got you got to work out when you get divorced. You can hang around and, and hope that's going to going to remend itself, or you move on. And I decided to move on, and I, I've been so lucky. You know, I'm always so thankful to Australian rugby for the the knowledge and the the skills I got and the people I met. You know, at the Brumbies and with the Wallabies and and to a less extent the Reds. But uh, you know, we all have our failures. Um, but uh, no, I'm I'm so thankful. So. Me now, I want to coach well. Yeah, you know, I really want to coach well. And when Ian came down to Cape Town, I can still remember the morning. Beautiful Saturday morning in Cape Town. I've only been there two weeks. I've done one training session, one meeting with the Stormers. And then Ian came down and said, you know, would you be interested in coaching England? Uh, I didn't think about it as England, but I knew that they had the potential to be a great team and I want this team to play great rugby. Yeah, you know, I want my my legacy for this team to be that they play great rugby. Just similar with Japan. Yeah, you know, if you do something for a group of people and for a country like that, then I reckon you're doing something meaningful. So to me, I don't feel guilty coaching against Australia on the weekend. Yeah, you know, I want our boys to play good rugby. Really good rugby. If we play really well, we'll win. If we don't play really well, we won't win. Eddie, uh, uh, can I just, you just touched on uh, you know, everyone has their failures. Um, how, how valuable do you look at, at failure as a teaching mechanism? Because, you know, uh, in industry, in the military, uh, you know, failure is a really important thing to be able to learn from. Do, do you value losing as a teaching mechanism and do you learn more from losing than you do from winning? Well, let's talk about the cycle of sustainable success. That you get to a stage where, you know, usually it starts with disappointment because that drives drives energy, it drives emotion it, and it drives a, uh, ambition to be where you're going to get. And then as you get more successful, the, the ability of you to keep that desire and that energy gets harder because most people in life want to be comfortable, you know, and that's, that's the reality. So... The energy it takes to keep that team winning is enormous and you've got to find different ways of doing it. Um, so when you get to that, that stage, sometimes a slight disappointment can, can give you that energy and drive back again. You know, for us, we lost to Ireland in that last Grand Slam game. Uh, we thought we had dealt with all the, the issues of complacency. Um, and I don't think we were complacent. I think, you know, sometimes you just get beaten by a better team on the day. But certainly that has driven a new sense of urgency and, and, and energy about what we want to do, more particularly with the coaching staff than the, the players, which is important because the coaching staff sets the environment for the players. Um, so, yeah, it's important, but you don't want to have too many of them. You don't want to learn too much. <laughs> Hi, um, Eddie, if I can just ask a question, please. Um, Edward Bagner, I'm an ardent Gloucester fan, but um, I'm going to show a bit of um, dispassionateness here. Um, Dylan Hartley and Jamie George. Clearly, Dylan is very highly respected by you. He's your captain. Um, but I would say to you that he's probably coming towards the end of his career. Jamie George is probably coming to the fore. And... If you look at the Lions, he was, I think I'm right in saying he was pretty much the first pick as, as hooker. We've got two years to the to the World Cup. I guess there's going to be a tipping balance at some point. How are you going to deal with that? Uh, easily. Time, time will come. 
time will come when it's right to change. And the other issue I've got is, is creating another captain, which I don't have at the moment. Um, and it's not just creating a captain, it's creating a team around that captain. And there's a guy who could be captain now, but there's not the team around to support him if we take Dylan out of that. So we'd have a huge leadership vacuum. So one of, one of the key goals for us going forward is to increase the leadership density of the team. And when we've done that, then there's an option of, of starting Jamie. Okay, but but I, I notice a lot of the players get injured, particularly as they get older. So I would suggest that the captaincy is is really important. Well, of course it is. But at what point are you going to look to his successor? Uh, I'm looking now. Looking now. Okay. Yeah, I know, I know what we've got to do, but I've, I've got to evolve that. It's not something that you can just do now and say it's right. And and the captain's super important in rugby. Yeah, you know, rugby's a complex game. You know, it's a very complex game where every decision you get, someone's got to make a decision on the field and they've got to be able to galvanise the, the opinions of a number of different groups that are doing different things all the time. Um, and Dylan's brilliant at that. Um, and there's no way we would have had a, a record we've got now without Dylan as captain. So... Yeah, there'll be a time, yes, when it'll be time to move on and, and that'll that'll uh, evolve by itself. And I feel sorry for if you lost the supporter. Because <laughs> well, they've got a great ground, great tradition, but a crap team. Uh, with respect, I think we'll see you on Friday night. Um, uh, put your money where your mouth is. But thank you very much. Just a, that, that point around leadership density, because I think that's, again, something that'd be very um, appropriate for, for most people here in their, their businesses and, um, and, and the teams that they have in, in the government organisations. How do you build leaders? Uh, well, we've identified four or five guys that we think have got the potentiality to lead, but the first thing they've got to be able to do is lead themselves. So we're trying to teach players to lead themselves and, and this is why we create environments where they've got to make decisions. You know, they had to make a decision today, what they did for recovery. And if you get guys who can lead themselves, then they've got a chance to lead others. So, yeah, we talk about self-leadership first, that can you lead yourself? And leading yourself is, is making sure that the person next to you is doing the job he needs to do. And if he's not doing the job, have the ability to tell him what, what he's got to do and get him to do it. Because that's really important. But you also, sorry, earlier you said that within the England team that that, or in England more generally, that it's difficult for people to have those conversations. It's, uh, yeah, it's difficult. But I think that's across the world. Right. And, it's di- and that's why creating leaders in teams. And I think the, most, the, the, the best example is how New Zealand, you know, for all, if you read Legacy, they've got everything in the world sorted, you know, but they don't. Uh, they had McCaw, they had Carter, who were just freaks. You know, they were freaks. Woodcock, Mialamu, Nonu, they were greats of the game. And they're not producing the leaders now. You know, they struggled to think against the Lions. They struggled to think when Australia's put them under pressure. They don't have that great leadership density. Um, and it's difficult. It's not easy. But you've got to invest time. We've, we've put on a, a staff member whose one of his main responsibilities is to increase the leadership density. Hi, Eddie. I'm um, Kate Hudson from Australia. My father was a uh, wanderer. You probably don't know that team. Very famous Newcastle rugby team. Um, uh, my question's more about um, 
key man. So I'm old enough to remember Campisi being a man that could make or change a game. I was there in 2003 behind the goalpost when Johnny kicked the goal. Um, thank you. Um, so maybe not in, in now, but in all your teams and thinking from a business point of view, how do you cope when there's a key man risk or one man in the team that can make or break? Um, so a team is no I in team. So how do you cope with your coaching spirit on how to um, to make that be less Yeah, I, I think you just got to diversify your risk. Uh, yeah, you got to try to spread the risk. Uh, so certainly, you know, for us at the moment, we've rested Owen Farrell and, and Murrow. And one of the reasons is we want to be able to find out, because they're key players for us. You know, they've been nominated again for the World Player of the Year. They're good players. So we want to, be fi- we want to find out whether we can cope without them. Um, so I think you've got to allow failure to do that because you've got to allow... Because the gap between that player and the next one's enormous, generally speaking. So you've got to allow that next player to have some failure to learn where they've got to go and, and keep giving them opportunities, uh, which is difficult. Hi, Eddie. Um, I am uh, uh, working with David in content group, but I'm originally Czech, so my background would be more ice hockey than rugby. And David was talking to me about rugby a lot, and he took me to the gay, uh, game on Saturday, and he said how wonderful this is going to be. And uh, I was there for the first time. You know, I saw these 82,000 people around, and I, and I was expecting a fantastic thing, which uh, kind of uh, was there, but I didn't actually understood why these 82,000 people came for the game, which was quite static. And then I understood that it wasn't the one, that it should be another one, because I'm probably the only person who doesn't understand rugby <laughs> in this room. But I really liked it anyway. It was very interesting. And I think I uh, got to understand a few rules. Um, and I was really grateful. And uh, uh, just to make... Um, uh, I was I was talking to a lot of people. They talked to me about rugby, and they said the women are playing rugby as well, which was interesting. When I saw this, you know, bench of people lying on each other, I thought that should be interesting. I was thinking, what do you think about women playing rugby? And uh, another question, which is more amateur, like, do they have also the cauliflower ears? ears which <laughs> I thought might be... Uh, I know that women play ice hockey, but they are all covered by everything, so they don't get hurt uh, as Yeah, much. no, rugby's becoming really popular for women. women uh, English RFU's just set up a, uh, a league for, for women, and, and they're doing very well. Um, and do they have the... Uh, um... I haven't looked that closely, to be honest. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, you know, and it's great. It just creates another opportunity for, for girls to play sport, which is what you want. You know, young kids, you just want them playing sport. Any sort of sport's good for them. And, and it's become popular. Yeah, it's become popular actually in Czech Republic, which is interesting. I Do mean, they have uh, cauliflower ears? Not yet. <laughs> not yet, but it, it really does. And I really enjoyed it, even though I, you know, I thought it's good. I thought that's why the people come there, but... Um, I think on Saturday it will be much. It's really time. interesting the game when I look back. You know, if you take contest out of the breakdown, which the referee did, you know, people say you should have more continuity, which is wrong because the game is this this 
delicate balance between contest and continuity all the time. And if you go too far one side, it becomes boring. Go too far the other side, it becomes boring. Because on the weekend, you couldn't get any transitional play. Because if you had the ball, you could keep the ball. Um, and the referee we got on, on Saturday is completely different. You know, he allows contests. He's a Kiwi. He's ophthalmologist, so he thinks he can see everything. Um, uh, you know, it should be a completely different game. Flick, can, I ask, can I ask a question? Hi, Eddie. Um, when I think back to the 80s and 90s, sometimes England were accused of being very stilted in their play. Earlier you mentioned the importance of trust, which I guess in sport as in business, trust is expressed through delegation. How much do you trust the team? How much do you delegate on match day and, and let them go on with it? Uh, massively, because we can't get on the field. Uh, <laughs> it's a complete uh, delegation. But... Uh, in terms of the players now, uh, we're, we're moving to a, a much more fluid state uh, in terms of the way we're understanding the game. We're not quite there at the moment because, you know, the ability of a team is the ability of a team to change after 20 minutes because every team goes in with a set game plan and then the other team has a set game, game plan and then the referee has his own game plan. Okay, so on that point, we're going to have to talk about Italy. Yeah. And, and one of the things was that it took England until half-time yep. to adjust. Yeah. Why, why so long? If, if, you, if you delegate, you know, I, I was at home with my son, we were screaming at the TV, pick it up, just drive it up the middle, just just, just respond to the tactic. No, well, no, no, I shouldn't. No, I shouldn't. I but, can't. If you know more than me, you should be catching <laughs> No, I don't. But, but you know, that, that, that was the thing, you know, but why why that, weren't we flexible? Because it's, because it's not that simple. Right, it's not okay. that simple. The boys tried to do it, but they couldn't do it. And, and it sometimes happens. Yeah, it's a difficult game we play. It's a complex game. Uh, and it's not just sim simply changing that sort of things. They had all ideas about what they should have done, um, but they weren't able to execute it. So, yeah, it's one of those things, mate. Okay, we might get uh, one more. One more question if we have... Oh, we've got two. So we'll, uh, we'll allow our friend from Florida a question as well. Hi, Eddie. I've got a unique accent in this room. We, uh, we got a good result at the, uh, at the weekend. My question is, being England manager, do you feel that that's a tougher proposition than anything you've experienced to date? Or is it just different? Uh, well, the only difference... Uh, coaching England from coaching any other team is the media. That's the only difference, that they're at you the whole time, you know, and they can't wait for failure. They're all sitting there hoping, hoping that we lose on the weekend and then they can write every bit of rubbish they've found, get it out there, you know, they'll find everything. That's the only difference. So you is know, the, is the coaching, a, coaching a team, you coach a 16-year-old team, you coach... A uh, second grade team down the park. You know, all you want to do is, is catch them well and you want them to play well. So that never changes. The difference is the media. We need nicer media then. No, no, this is the media you've got. Um, and, and you've got to be able to put up with it. I'm lucky I'm old now, so I don't really care what they write. Uh, when you're young, it's harder. What, what about that incident this week that you, you felt moved to actually say something where a member of the media sort of breached? you know, the, uh, the, the boundaries 
and and got in behind um, was able to reveal things that they perhaps shouldn't have. Why did you feel the need to come out and say that? Because I think they should be more respectful, and I think you know again we have we stand we have standards we follow. Um, I'm professional in the way I deal with them. I give them all the time they need, and I expect them to be professional with us. And if they're not, then they should understand they're not. And I think, you know, the look on their face when I said it was, you know, they couldn't believe it. Um, but that's... Couldn't that's, believe it in that no-one has ever spoken no, to them I before? No, I think that someone said... Because they all knew what happened, you know, and they all knew who it was. Um, but no-one said anything to him about, about doing it. Of course they wouldn't. So now he's received a number of phone calls from other journalists because now it's put themselves in a difficult position where their name's been soiled. Okay. All right, one more question. Hi, I'm Jess. As David said, I'm from Florida, so I live and breathe American football. Um, but one of the many controversies that's going on... You need to get some fun in your life then. <laughs> oh, it's so fun. Oh, man, college football, there's nothing like it. Um, but one of the many controversies surrounding football right now are injuries, uh, of course, concussions, broken bones, everything like that. Um, so I came to the rugby game on Saturday, my first rugby game ever, and noticed how in the world are they not wearing any type of protection? So as rugby progresses, do you think that injuries are going to be a major issue and possibly deplete the youths playing like it is with American football or is the style still going to be safer than American football? Like what's what's going to happen with the future of that? Well, I think it's a good question. Um, I think firstly, I think the way rugby's dealt with concussion has been exceptional. I think they're, they're probably leading the way in terms of how sports deal with it. Now, you know, someone f- f- goes off balance a little bit. It's reported. They've given the HIA... And it's very strict the way they do it, which is right. I think the second issue is that the ground doesn't get any... The pitch doesn't get any bigger. Uh, The players continue to get bigger, stronger and faster. And that if we don't change something in the game, the collisions will get to a stage where we're maybe putting the players at too much of a risk. And I think there is a great need in the game to get fatigue, you know... There's a belief that that caused more injury. I'm of the belief it causes less because there'll be more space on the field. Um, and I think it's really important in the game that we get fatigue. Thank you. All right, ladies and gentlemen, a round of applause, please, for Mr Eddie Jones. So there you go. Great insights from a man who is having enormous success uh, with the England rugby team. And as I said, a dear friend of uh, myself and of Content Group and a great supporter of what we are doing. And we are very proud that he is an ambassador for Content Group. And we wish Eddie and the England rugby union team all the success in the world as they come up to the next big tournament where they aim for three in a row of the famous Six Nations Rugby Tournament. So uh, look out for uh, England in that. And uh, certainly thanks again to Eddie for coming on board with Content Group to help us uh, with our mission of helping government to strengthen communities and improve the well-being of citizens through effective content communication. So thanks again for uh, tuning in and we will be back at the same time next week. But for the moment, it's bye for now. You've been listening to In Transition, the program dedicated to the practice of content communication in the public sector. For more, 
visit us at contentgroup.com.au.